0: Play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild.
1: <laughs> what up, Crazy Train Radio? You look like hell, and I could look the same. What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the Truth, truth, truth. truth
0: true i love scotch i love scotch scotch has got scotch here it goes down down into my belly what's it open
1: Say it.
0: Yeah. Say it. 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 Don't mess with me. I'm one crazy mook.
1: Hi, this is Bruce Marcuson from Cooperstown, New York. I hope you'll listen to Crazy Train Radio.
0: Hey, folks, it's your least favorite host in a podcast world, Croc jonathan Steele. boy do we have a good one for you today ladies and gentlemen boys and girls children's of all ages i am actually looking forward to this one this guy on the other end of the line is got a very busy week and it actually started this morning or lunchtime today, because he had a nice little virtual chat with Mr. Steve Sachs, who is going to be attending the Hall of Fame Classic this weekend, as it is recording uh, Memorial Day weekend in Cooperstown at the legendary Double Day Field. But we'll get into all that kind of stuff as well. But the man on the other end of this line is currently the manager of digital and outreach learning at the national baseball hall of Fame, and what's unique about this gentleman as well is he also has a love of horror and i figured he would appreciate it so i just brought this up as he was getting on the line the jason mask in the orio colors that had this had made up in new york actually but let's go ahead and say hello to mr bruce markinson bruce how you doing today
1: very well jonathan how are you thanks uh, for having me oh i
0: appreciate it and like i said got a busy week you had to chat the, at lunchtime with mr Sachs, who will be a part of the festivities this weekend but just in general doing what you do up at the hall i'm sure keeps you very busy so with the upcoming event this weekend we'll start there the hall of fame classic what kind of involvement do you have with such an event?
1: Well, first of all, it's great to have it after a two-year layoff. We had to cancel in 2020 and 2021. But uh, thankfully now, we're we're trying to get back to as much normalcy as we can. And uh, we are going to have the Classic now for the first time since 2019. It's going to be one of the busiest weekends for me personally and our department, the education department in general. Uh, On Friday, uh, we have a lot of things going on. I'm gonna be doing two different programs with George Brett and Willie Mays Akins. One of the programs, we're gonna talk about their relationship as Royals teammates, but also how they kind of rekindled a friendship uh, after Willie was released from prison after rather long incarceration. Uh, We're also gonna talk uh, in the evening on Friday with both Brett and Aikens about the upcoming film, The Royal, which is a movie about Willie Aikens' life and some of the struggles uh, that he has had um, during his baseball career, but also since then as well. We have the uh, clinic on Friday afternoon as well. That's sort of in between the two programs. We have uh, about seven or eight former players that'll be offering instruction to Uh, Younger kids up to 12 years of age at Doubleday Field, Uh, the stations about pitching and hitting, running, fielding, throwing, bunting, all sorts of things. Uh, That's always a fun event. It's great to see all the kids get the instruction from guys who played in the major leagues. So that's just Friday. And of course, Saturday is the really big day. Uh, We have uh, the Home Run Derby at 12 noon at Doubleday Field that precedes the Hall of Fame Classic. A game that features uh, 30 retired stars, uh, one from each of the teams. It'll also, be seven Hall of Famers serving as coaches and managers. And then, after the game of that evening, we're going to have an event uh, called Night at the Ballpark, where fans who have purchased tickets can have their photographs taken with not only the Hall of Famers, but also the uh, 30 retired players who partook in the game. So it's uh, it's a whirlwind of activity coming up on Friday and Saturday, but after two years of not having these events, which really are celebratory events about baseball, it's nice to bring them back in twenty twenty two. Exactly,
0: and I am coming up on Thursday to see the game on Saturday and the Home Run Derby, but also I am going to be coming in the hall on Friday for the George and Willie discussions. So Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to those. But for those who might not be familiar with you, you actually started with, and I know everything on the internet is true and the museum tries to be factual about things, rightfully so, but you actually started working for them in the library and public programs side of things in 95 you left in 2004 and came back in 2013 to do what you're doing now so can you talk a little bit about what you actually do and the evolution of your job over the years with the hall of fame
1: yeah, you know, I started at the Hall way back in uh, 1995. Uh, hard to believe that's now 27 years ago. I was actually a researcher in the library. Then I moved over to museum programs. Uh, did that for a few years. Um, I got a little bit burned out. Uh, I had, you know, been working without really without a break uh, since my college graduation, and uh, so I decided to leave the Hall in '04. I actually worked at some of the other museums in town. I worked at the Fenimore and Farmers Museums, uh, which are smaller museums in the Hall of Fame, but terrific places, uh, great learning institutions in their own right. So I did that from 04 to 2013. Uh, That's when I had a chance to come back to the Hall of Fame in the education department. And that's really been, of all the jobs I've had, and I've enjoyed them all in different ways, but working in education has been my favorite. Uh, like working with the kids, like the opportunity to teach about baseball, you know, getting to do virtual programs like we did today with Steve Sachs, uh, programs with a number of Hall of Famers. Uh, we've talked to uh, commissioners. We've talked to uh, film experts like Ben Mankiewicz on Turner Classic Movies. We've had all sorts of interesting programs. They're all related to baseball in a way. Uh, some of them are mainstream baseball people. Some are maybe not so mainstream, but they have great stories to tell, and uh, it's great that we can, you know, bring those programs uh, virtually. and And now, after you know, an absence of a couple of years, we're able to bring those programs back to the museum in our grandstand theater, and for smaller events in our bullpen theater. Uh, so I really love the educational aspect of the job. Uh, I see it as our mission at the Hall of Fame to not only teach kids about baseball, uh, but hopefully to get them interested in the game, uh, expose them to the greatness of the game, the great history of the game. And baseball is is also a great way to teach uh, the types of things that we would teach in a regular New York State curriculum. You know, we, for example, use the story of Jackie Robinson and Negro League's pioneers to tell uh, the civil rights story. Uh, We uh, are able to use a batting average and statistics like slugging percentage to teach math. Uh, We're able to go to different ballparks around the country um, in a virtual way to teach them about geography. Uh, We can also do the science of baseball by talking about exactly what happens when the ball hits the bat, when the pitch ball hits the swung bat. So there's a lot of potential there. Uh, I think that it really does two things. It exposes our game to younger kids, which is always a concern. As you hear, always hear that, well, young kids are not into baseball, and we're really trying to reverse that trend. But also, you're able to teach the curriculum uh, that is offered in schools, augment that curriculum uh, by doing it through a vehicle like baseball. And for those kids who like baseball, and there are some out there, I think teaching them through baseball. Uh, makes it a little bit more palatable, uh, a little more understandable. Uh, They can relate to the material a little bit better. And I think are more enthusiastic about the material too.
0: Well, with that being said, and I was thinking about this as you said that, and as far as the teachings of the younger generations, how would you agree with the statement of that better someone knows the game especially in a position like yours, the better you can teach the history of the game?
1: Oh, I think so. I think absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I'm not a teacher by trade. I'm not a certified teacher. I'm not really a museum person. I came to this job really because of my knowledge of baseball and my interest and my passion in reading about the game, researching the game, researching its history. And um, I found that I you know, can make a pretty decent career of it doing it that way. So I think having, having a knowledge of the game, um, really uh, it does make this job easier and more meaningful but I think also from a fan perspective, I think the more that you know about baseball, the more that you learn about its history, the more you enjoy it and the more you want to learn. You know, every time you think, ah, you know, I've got this game out pad, I, you know, I, I, I've got the mysteries of baseball solved. Every time you think you've reached that stage, that's when you learn something new and you realize, well, okay, I'm knowledgeable about baseball, but I'm still not at that point. Nobody's at that point where they know everything about the game and know all of its secrets, know all of its mysteries, um, know exactly why it appeals to so many people. Uh, you try to build on that knowledge and you try to get closer and closer to that goal, but uh, just when you think you've gotten there, you realize um, you don't know it all. There's always somebody out there that you know knows an aspect of the game um, better than I do, uh, and I and I think that's one of the great things about following baseball it's the amount of knowledge the amount of information history lore is just vast
0: well I started this off by mentioning the virtual voices of the game and I mentioned the one you did this afternoon with Steve Sachs and over that time with this learning process of trying to expand our knowledge of the game and such is there somebody in particular when doing this particular program that you really had an aha moment and something they said, or we're talking about or whatever the case may be that you may not have thought
1: about before. Yeah, I think that happens all the time. Uh, I think that um, whenever you talk to somebody who has expertise in baseball, whether they're a writer, broadcaster, film critic, player, manager, whether they're active or retired, uh, almost all of them bring something to the table uh, when you do an interview. We, our interviews tend to be fairly in-depth. Uh, they tend to be about an hour for the most part. The program we do with Steve Sachs was a little bit shorter. Uh, we were previewing the classic, talking about some of the highlights of his career. So it ended up being about a 40-minute program. But most of the programs we do are a full hour, sometimes a little bit more. Uh, we're able to get in-depth with our uh, subjects. And we're able to, you know, really pick up on uh, interesting uh, things. Um, One of my favorite guys to interview, and I've now interviewed him three times, twice virtually and once in person at the Hall of Fame. And that's Dennis Eckersley, now a broadcaster for the Red Sox. Um, First of all, great guy. Uh, He's so honest. Uh, He's so insightful into the game. Uh has a, kind of a boyish enthusiasm for baseball and its history. And um it's really able, he's really willing to kind of pour himself out. You know, some people when you interview them, they're a little bit reserved, they hold back a little bit. That's not the case with Eckersley. He he gives you the full honest answer, and almost all the time it's insightful and enlightening. And a lot of times he'll say something you're not really expecting, but it will make you think um, you know a little bit more uh, about uh, about the game you, you know you think you know i thought i knew a lot about accuracy going in but you learn so much more talking to him for a full hour
0: well you mentioned earlier trying to teach the younger generations and such and not only for the field trips you have that come into the area whether are part of the tournaments that Happen between may and october but you also host these virtual field trips for schools who might not be in a good region to travel to cooperstown but maybe because of costs as well even if they could travel so what can you uh, talk about with that particular program
1: well as you mentioned you know there are a lot of schools that uh either can't afford to come here um uh, Getting a bus, you know, having a bus for a day, paying a driver, taking the kids out of school, it's, it's expensive. It's a real process. So a lot of them will find that it is easier and more cost efficient to do a virtual program with us. And we can do anything from 45 minutes to an hour or longer. Uh, we're able to offer programs about civil rights, cultural diversity, uh, science on the sandlot, uh, math. Uh, geography. We've added some new programs in recent years like popular culture through baseball cards, which is really a fun one, as you might imagine. Uh, we do American history through baseball uniforms. Uh, we do geometry. Uh, we even do labor history for older students, high school and college students as well. So we're able to offer a lot of uh, really, I think, intriguing programs that mix baseball you know, with the every curriculum that would be offered in New York state. And um, I I think it's, it's, it's an opportunity that we have, we don't have a, you know, a big window. Uh, As I said, we have 45 minutes to an hour to deliver the program. And sometimes it's hard to get through to the kids. You know, they're maybe not that interested in baseball, maybe they're distracted. Um, But hopefully each time we deliver a program, we're at least getting through to a few of them maybe sparking an interest in baseball, or maybe if the youngster is already a fan of the game, really kind of enhancing, encouraging that interest, pushing them to, to learn more about the game. And uh, hopefully we're able to, to do that. We do about 150 to 200 programs a year. And uh, my, my hope is that every time we do a program, we, we're getting through fully to at least some of the kids. Uh, obviously, we'd love to get through to all of them, but it is hard to do in a 45-minute, two-hour slot, but we do our best, and, and we hope we hope to engage the kids for that period of time and hopefully spark an interest that will continue beyond that program.
0: Well, you mentioned it there about using pop culture and baseball cards and such, and like myself, I know you are a, when it comes to the fan side of things, you are a collector of cards and such so what got your interest into that aspect of things which also I'm looking forward to seeing the exhibit up on the third floor of the museum talking about the history of cards and whatnot so
1: yeah Uh, shoebox treasures that was put up in 2019 it's really our newest full-time exhibit we put up some a temporary exhibit since then, but it's it's a lot of fun. You definitely have to check it out during the visit to the Hall of Fame. I started collecting cards in uh, 1972. I was all of seven years of age. So that 72 top set is uh, very dear to me. And um, proudly, I've been able to collect every card from that set. And it's my most cherished set, in, in part because it is the first set that I had. What I found for me is that it just, it augmented me being a baseball fan. You know, watch the games on TV, occasionally go to the games, Yankee Stadium or Shea Stadium at the time. But it was a way to sort of have the players, not only from the Mets and the Yankees, but from all the other teams. When you have that card in your hand, it's sort of like having that player in your in your possession, if you will. And what I mean by that is um, you you get to know what the player looks like. Um, You can read the information on the back of the card not only the statistics, but sometimes the biographical information. And you feel like you've almost made a connection uh, with that player. And I think it's just a perfect way for a baseball fan to augment their fandom uh, by collecting uh, baseball cards. And I think it, for me, it was especially powerful, even at a young age, even when I was you know, seven or eight years of age. And it got to a point where, I was as big into baseball cards as I was into baseball itself. I mean, the two the two were both passions of mine. They both tied in together. But the cards were something that um, at times almost seemed better than watching the game itself, which is kind of a strange thing. And it was always, you know, I was a fan of players like Roberto Clemente and Willie Stargell. Of course, Clemente, you know, sadly died later in 72. But there were, there were cards put out for him in 72. And then there was a final card posthumously produced for him in 1973. So it was very important to get Clemente's cards. It was important to get Stargell's cards. My favorite Yankees were Munson and Mercer. I needed to get those cards. And um, that, that, that hunt for those players. You know, it seemed like so many times you went to the local stationery store, the local pharmacy. You'd buy a pack of cards, and it seemed like you were getting, you know, the same second-string utility infielder every time. And sometimes it seemed like those star players were elusive. But if you just kept at it, eventually the Munson, the Mercer, the Clemente, the Stargell, eventually those cards would turn up, and they'd become part of your collection. You felt like you had a, a piece of those players.
0: Well, my collection expands Besides cards and all that, it's grown when, as much as finances have grown. But this piece I actually pulled out stays in the house, and I I'm gonna I want to bring it up and see if somebody can give me more specifics on it. But this was passed down from my father, who got it from an older gentleman when he was a kid in the '60s, and it's a leather ball from the back in the day. And the reason I'm I'll compare it to not that it is i don't think but i want to bring it up because there's an exhibit in the hall where you guys had the or i should say you guys have the balls that were color coded in gold or whatever and have mm-hmm. descriptions and right. back in the day little history lesson here folks they would only play with one or two balls in these games And the winning team would keep the ball, it'd be made in the gold or whatever the case may be, and given the details of this particular game, the date, the score, who they played, et cetera. So, you know, having something like this of that previous generation from the 19, I'd say at least 30s or 40s, this ball, from what I know. But I want, like I said, I want to bring it up and talk to folks who know the artifacts.
1: Hopefully can make that happen. That's ball looks like. It might be older than that. Yeah. I mean, it's so dark. And if it's made of leather, it looks like it might be from the late 1800s.
0: Yeah. So that's why I want to, you know, go to somebody who might know something a little more than me. But
1: yeah. it,
0: like I said, I've been collecting stuff. I haven't said it, but I've been collecting stuff since the age of seven or eight years old. Actively. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, that's probably one of my favorite pieces right next to my, uh, Ripken bat folks won't see this, but I have a Oriole park in my background. Who's for the 30th anniversary this year. Yeah. But as far as being a fan of teams, I'm curious to know. I rumor has it. Your father was a Mets fan, which I was just at Citi field two weeks ago, but yet you became, a Yankee fan as a child was that out of
1: spite just to stick it to that or what was the story here no it wasn't really out of spite I I think part of it was and this is a story that's been told to me because I I was so young I would not remember this but Mickey Mandel's last season was 1968 and I was three years old and apparently uh I um would just go bonkers when I was watching the Yankee games on WPIX Channel 11 when they announced a mantle was coming up. And I would just start yelling. I guess I had a playpen that I would jump around in or maybe even jump out of. I have no memory of this. But uh, even at a very young age, Mickey Mantle meant something to me. Of course, he was at the end of the line. He was only a fraction of the player he once had been, but that didn't matter. And, uh, Maybe it started with Mantle. I guess there may have been some rebellion there, too. Um, Although I I don't think I was that rebellious as a child, but my father did like the Mets. Uh, He had started liking the Mets from when they were an expansion team in 1962. So by the early 70s, he was pretty much ensconced as a Mets fan. And I guess I decided to do something a little bit different and go with the Yankees. Uh, Maybe the mantle thing is part of it. Maybe I like the pinstripes. Uh, Maybe I was rebelling a bit uh, uh, against my father. But my father is the reason I became a baseball fan. He loved the game. He would read books, collected books, uh, would let them read, would let me read them. He'd encourage me to read them. In fact, every Christmas, he would buy me at least one or two baseball books, books about baseball history. So it was something I absolutely loved and cherished from a young age. So because of my father's influence, and by the way, my father, who passed away in 1997, um, would have turned 105 years of age this week. Uh, So he, he goes back quite a ways. He actually was a public relations officer during World War II, early 1940s, so um gives you an idea of the generation that he came from but he's he's really the reason why i became so passionate about the game and just absolutely loved it my earliest memories are really from when i was seven when i was collecting those 1972 Topps cards but it was really something that came from uh, my father Uh, my mother was not really a sports fan my sister is not a sports fan Uh, i had some some friends in the neighborhood uh families in the neighborhood that were sports fans but In terms of my family, our house, uh, my father was big into baseball, and that was the sport that he taught me about. I think he wanted me to follow it, and he didn't really need to push me that hard in that direction, because once I got a taste of baseball, I realized this was the sport I wanted to follow.
0: Well, you mentioned about the books that you would read as a child, and dad purchasing books for gifts and such, leads me to the other little nugget that I want to bring up and thank you again for the time but you are an author of both baseball books and you have two horror books out as well and I'm curious to know as far as the baseball side of things you two of your books are based off Charlie Finley's A's so what was the interest in the A's of those 60s and 70s there?
1: Well, there's, there are two different editions, but they're essentially the same book. Uh, one came out with uh, Master's Press. That was my first book in 1998. And then later, after Master's Press went out of business, uh, I was able to get a publisher to um, reissue uh, the book. Uh, different cover, uh, some editing, um, some cleaning up of, of a few of the mistakes that were made in the first print run, but they're essentially uh, they're essentially the same book. Uh, I was fascinated by those A's teams of the early '70s, uh, the green and gold uniforms, the swinging A's as they were called. I would only see them a couple of times a year. They'd come into Yankee Stadium for, you know, maybe a three-game series. Uh, you know, early in the season, and then again, later in the season, and maybe only play six games at Yankee Stadium, six games at the Coliseum. But they always seemed to do pretty well against the Yankees. They had a terrific lineup. They had great pitching. They had future Hall of Famers like Reggie Jackson, Catfish Hunter, uh, Raleigh Fingers. They had some near Hall of Famers like Bert Campanaris and Sal Bando, uh, Vita Blue, who early in his career was an extremely dominant pitcher. They also had a great manager in Dick Williams, uh, who led them to championships in 72 and 73. They were this brash team. They're very colorful, the green and gold. Everybody else, for the most part, start to change in a few years. But in the early 70s, most teams wore white at home, gray on the road, very boring. And the A's came in with this radically different look. They had very brash players, confident players. And there were always controversies going on. Players were sniping at Finley. Finley was sniping at them. Players were fighting each other in the clubhouse. It was never a dull moment. And I remember reading the reports about those A's teams every week in the sporting news, which back then was really the Bible of baseball, and did a good job of keeping you posted about all the other teams. So even though we didn't have the internet, we didn't have cable TV, you could still keep up on crazy ongoing things with the Oakland A's franchise. And although I didn't follow them as passionately as the Yankees, I became very interested in them. And I think kind of I tucked away in the back of my head, I said, you know, if I ever do write a book about baseball, I think these A's teams uh, are going to be one of the first books because there just was so much material there to work with. (laughs) And it was just a lot of fun putting that book together. You know, it was my first book that I wrote was interviewing players really for the first time. It was a learning experience, but um, it was a book that, you know, I think it, it, it did surprisingly well. Uh, won an award from Society for American Baseball Research. Nobody expects that with their first book. You may probably, probably don't expect it with any book that you write. Um, but it, um, it really, you know, it turned out to be a, a phenomenal experience for me. And it was one that, kind of whet the appetite to want to write more books. So shortly thereafter, I wanted to write about Roberto Clemente, my favorite player of all time. And then I wanted to, um, you know, I want to write books about uh, other players, Orlando Cepeda from Puerto Rico. Um, I'm actually half Puerto Rican on my mother's side. That's one of the reasons why Clemente was my favorite player. Well, Cepeda, also from Puerto Rico, and I've had the pleasure of meeting Orlando, get get to know him whenever I see him Hall of Fame weekend, we always say hi, we um, talk about how we're doing so that that was another natural topic uh, for me, Uh, Ted Williams, I found fascinating. So I wrote a young adult book about Ted Williams, uh, whom I, I had a chance to meet once interview once that was another memorable uh, experience but um writing about the a's really got me started into this whole process of book writing and i learned a lot decided that this was something that i wanted to uh, continue to do um for a while there i was putting out a book like every other year and uh, i've slowed down you know you get older um get married have Kids. a daughter yeah. yeah you know you your priorities change the, your time changes as, as far as how much spare time you have but um you know i still want to get back to uh i haven't written a baseball book in a while but um i'd actually uh, like to do that and uh, to be honest I'm, I'm actually working on one right now I'm, uh, doing a book with um, mike eastler uh former uh pirate member of the 1979 world championship team later played for the Yankees and the Red Sox. He actually approached me about doing a book. So uh, I'm, writing, um, I'm writing his autobiography, working with him on that. Don't know when it's gonna be done, don't know when it's gonna be published, but that'll probably be my next uh, baseball book project. It's funny that you had a little
0: nugget there. And I noticed my shock fans of the show that are say younger, say 30 and under. And that being what you said was there was a time before cable TV and the internet.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: I know it's a, I yeah. know it might shock some people, but yes, that, that was the case at one time.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I started writing the book on the A's, the internet was just coming around and I was skeptical of it, I guess, like a lot of people. And, I didn't really use it all that much in research. I I mostly used the library at the Hall of Fame. That was one of the reasons why I took the job at the Hall of Fame. I wanted to write books after hours and on weekends and do the research there. But uh, yeah, the internet has certainly uh, changed things for fans and for, for researchers. But yeah, there was nothing like that in the early 70s when I started following the game. Uh, cable television was something that didn't come to my area till I think 1979 around that time. And that was great because then you could start to see, you could see Cubs games on WGN. You could see Pirates games, Red Sox games on, um, uh, Braves games uh, on TBS. Absolutely. Braves games on the superstation TBS. Um, but yeah, when I first started following the game in 72, basically the games that you had, you had the Mets on channel nine, WOR, the Yankees on PIX channel 11, you had the NBC game of the week Saturday afternoon. And then for a time also, there was a Monday night game on ABC and that was it. That was really about it. So you had two national games a week and then you had the Mets and the Yankees who on average were on TV four to five times a week. Um, nothing like today though in terms of all the choices that you have mlb network cable internet nobody had ever even thought of that it was that was none of that had been created at that point exactly and the other
0: little nugget or passion i would say and i joked about it earlier because i pulled up the mask on the uh, beginning of this conversation but you actually are an avid fan of the horror genre and the mm-hmm. latest book with that is actually called hosted horror on television and you talk about the screen gems and you go from the universal studio monsters to the monsters of the 70s and it's a wide gap there and it's changed even so much since the 70s yeah. but what has been the response for the horror passion as far as the books you've done? Because besides that book, you also did Hornet House of the Vampire.
1: Yeah, that was a fictional book uh, that I did based on the house that I grew up in. Uh, that was done at a very at a very small level, small publisher, which um, no longer is in business. Uh, but that was a challenge. That was the first uh, novel that I'd ever tried to write. Uh, the first fictional. That was... That was hard to do, but I was, I was glad to be able to, to get that down on paper. Um, in putting together the, the book now, Hosted Horror on Television, which just came out last year through McFarland, uh, that was really a reflection of my other passion growing up in the early 70s. After I'd watched the Yankee game on Saturday afternoon or early Saturday evening, Uh, Then came Chiller Theater on Channel 11. The six-fingered hand would emerge from the swamp, and I'd watch a late-night movie. Now, oftentimes, these films came on around 11, 11.30 at night, and I vowed to stay up late and watch it, but usually I fell asleep by halfway through. Occasionally, though, I would get to the end. I usually would scare myself because I'd be alone in a dark room. Everybody else in the house would be asleep. My parents also traveled a lot. They were both travel agents. So a lot of times they weren't even in the house. And uh, it's funny. I look back at those movies now and I, I say, you know, they're really not that scary. I mean, some of them are really good. They're well done, but they're they're not scary. But, you know, when you're eight, nine, 10, 11 years of age, uh, it's amazing what will frighten you. And for me, you know, they were frightening, but I loved them. And I would stay up late as, as much as I could to watch them. And I still love watching uh, uh, horror films. Um, and of course, you know today we talk about the internet and cable TV and how that's great for baseball fans. Well, streaming has become something terrific for horror fans. Yep. Uh, with Roku, with uh, Tubi, Netflix, Prime Video, all these different streaming options out there, it's incredible the volume of horror films that are out there, not just recent stuff, but stuff that goes back to the 60s and 70s and 80s. So it's given me the chance to rewatch a lot of these films, films that I watched when I was very young, but maybe don't remember that much about them. Um, And in other cases, it's given me a chance to watch films I never saw the first time around, films that were seemingly never on cable TV. And now, because of streaming services, they're at your fingertip. It's, It's amazing. So On a night when there's maybe not a good baseball game, maybe the Mets and Yankees aren't playing or they're both getting blown out, I can make the decision to switch over and uh, watch either an old movie or even an old television show. Uh, It's funny, I've just gotten into this show from the 90s, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is a very popular show. For years, I'd resisted it because I thought the title was just so ridiculous. Uh, I thought, (laughs) this can't be any good. And I'm into the second season. I love it. I think it's it's great. So it's really um, it's really exceeded my expectations. So they're just tremendous with all the streaming that's out there. All these channels, it's it's wonderful for for horror fans. Just like the internet and cable TV and streaming have also provided for baseball fans too.
0: Exactly, and it's funny you did not mention uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer because there was a recent convention in my area in Atlantic city. And I am friendly with miss Sandy Johnson from the original Halloween, who was the original Judith Myers and such. And she introduced me to miss Christy Swanson, who was Buffy in the series. So I thought that was kind in the of movie.
1: cool. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She was in the movie. Yeah. Um, the original movie, which came out, I guess a couple of years earlier. Um, the guy from um, Beverly Hills, 90210, sadly passed away a couple of years ago, was in that as well. Luke Perry. Uh, I don't know why. I'm, I don't know why I'm forgetting his name. But then Luke the, Perry, Luke Perry. that's right. My wife is yelling Luke Perry in the background, just like you are. Um, I have actually never seen the movie, but I have uh, the television show with Sarah Michelle Gellar. I've been uh, I've been watching. It was actually my wife who convinced me. Uh, you should watch that show. Everybody says everybody loves it. It's great reviews. People enjoy it. So she turned out to be right again. <laughs> well, that's usually the case.
0: Our better halves are usually <laughs> yeah. right. But on a horror aspect, what is your would you say your favorite series or particular movie? Would you say?
1: It's a great question. Terms of series, I'll tell you a show I really liked, and it's a shame that it got canceled after three seasons. Was uh, Penny Dreadful on Showtime? It was a show that brought together a lot of the classic monsters into uh, a Victorian era backdrop. You had Frankenstein, you had Dracula, you had um, a Dorian Gray character, um, you had a Wolfman. I thought it was a very well done show, it was tremendously uh, well acted, um, really top level performers. And then all of a sudden it got canceled by Showtime. I'm not really sure why, because it was very popular. I, I imagine it was an expensive series to produce in terms of costuming and that sort of thing. But that was a great show. I wish I wish that it had gone on for a longer uh, period of time. So I really... I really like, um, I really like that show. Um, As far as movies, my favorite movies, um, I have to go back to the classics. 1931, the original Frankenstein is, is still at the top of my list. Um, I love Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, even though it's comedy and horror, but it's, uh, it's another great Bela Lugosi film. um, And it's one that I, I don't think gets recognition it deserves. Uh, but I love horror from more recent years, too. You know, you go back to the 70s, um, you know, films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, you know, very powerful. Uh, then the 80s movies like The Changeling, uh, Fright Night. But there's also great horror that's um, being made today. Um, I thought the remake of The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss was terrific. Uh, I thought that was Really well done. Um, Movies like *Hereditary*, very frightening uh, film. Um, Just a couple that 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 uh, come to the top of my head. So I'm not one of the. Although I do like the old films, I'm not one who says that horror today is is no good. I actually think it's pretty darn outstanding in many ways. I think filmmaking today um, in the horror genre is really going through kind of a renaissance going through a high point so i love the films of today but i still have the interest in the vintage films from the 30s but also the hammer films from the 60s and some of the films i mentioned from the 70s and 80s there's, there's a lot to choose from there there's seems like every decade has something to offer whether it's classic films or it's films uh, of more recent vintage, which are a little more violent, have more gore. Um, I don't like too much gore. I like suspense. Sometimes I think showing less is better than showing more. Theater like to mystery. mind. Yes, exactly. And uh, I think there's a lot of films today that do that. And uh, I think it's a good time to be a horror fan. Well, you actually liked a tweet earlier and
0: about a book I just had a discussion with it's this time it's personal by uh, yeah, Harrison Smith, who actually did a movie called Death House mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. I think you would like that because it has a cast of characters of known horror people not doing exactly what they would expect. So that's a definitely, and it's on one of the streaming services.
1: and. You know, I know Harrison uh, quite well. I've uh, interviewed him at horror conventions. In fact, he was one of the people that I interviewed for my book, Hosted Horror on Television. And there's quite a bit of his commentary in the movie because he's an historian. And now he's not just a director oh, yeah. today, but he's an historian of horror going back to the classics. Um, and Great he loves guy, isn't he? That I do. Yeah, and he actually, he told me that um, one of the things that motivated him to write this book uh, was when he read my book, and he's actually one, I dedicated the book to a number of people who are horror historians, and Harrison is is one of the people that I mentioned, and, and some of the others are uh, writers like David Skull, uh, Frank Delostrito, uh, horror hosts like uh, Joe Bob Briggs I actually dedicated the book to these people. Harrison was one of them. And uh, he read the book and said he loved it. And he said it motivated him to to write his book. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I haven't gotten a copy, but do plan on getting one and reading it. And I'm, I'll be curious to see what Harrison has to say. He's very knowledgeable on horror, really a great mind on horror and horror history. Just a fun guy to talk to too. Oh yeah. And he's very honest. You know, he, um, will <laughs> give you a lot of insight into Hollywood, into what really goes on, uh, behind the scenes. You know, he's, um, he's a guy, he lives on the East coast. Uh, I think he lives in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, he often has to work with lower budgets, but, um, you know, he he often he's he's a little bit like Roger Corman. He's able to make pretty good material out of uh, limited budgets in the genre of horror. And uh, I always enjoy talking to him because he he always has. In, you mentioned just about any name in Hollywood today and anyone with any remote connection to horror. Harrison knows something about them.
0: Exactly. And not that I've ever had a chance to talk to Dennis Eckersley to go back to baseball but from what you said earlier i would find harrison in that same boat in terms of if you're not looking for an honest answer don't ask him the question
1: right oh yeah yeah he'll tell you what he thinks and it may not be exactly what you want to hear but it it's honest and it's usually it's based on knowledge and information and it doesn't mean you have to agree with every opinion that he or anybody else expresses but if they come at it come at it from a base of knowledge and a passion. And he certainly has that passion for horror. You have to respect that. And pretty much to
0: sum that up, it's like an expression my uh, father tells me again all the time and everybody else. When you think of Nolan Ryan, what's the pitch you think of? Fastball. Right down the middle, right? He's Mm -hmm. just going to challenge. He's just going to, Fastball right down the middle with his point of view and the honesty. But obviously, have kept you 45 minutes, and I really appreciate the time. But
1: Well, I, I could go on for however long you want.
0: My final question for you, and I want to go back to the hall, because obviously sure. exhibits change, and then there's exhibits that have been a permanent fixture there. And I know it's stayed the same for the most part, the one since I started coming up there in 2016, and that's the Hank Aaron exhibit. But Mm -hmm. is there a particular exhibit that you always appreciate it? And is there something that you would like to see put as an exhibit, even if it's just a part-time exhibit in the museum at some point?
1: Well, let me answer the first part of your question. Um, actually my two favorite exhibits there are the two newest ones we have uh shoebox treasures which is about baseball cards and it's a very colorful exhibit it's it's a great smattering of cards from many different eras but there's also a lot of great information about the history of the card industry how they how the industry has changed you know, initially cards were issued with tobacco then candy then gum so there's, there's a great history of, of baseball cards and baseball card collecting. It's a tremendously popular hobby, even to this day. So that's a great exhibit. And then about a year or two after that, our curators put together a very extensive exhibit. It's called Whole New Ballgame as baseball from 1970 to the current day. So it's basically the last 50 years. And that coincides pretty much with my life and my time as a baseball fan. So it's 1970 to 2022, and as new history continues to be made, there's built-in space to accommodate that, Uh, but it's a lot of fun. It's very colorful. When you first walk into the exhibit, you see the San Diego chicken mascot who greets you. (laughs) Uh, You see samples of those Oakland A's uniforms that I talked about earlier, Uh, the first polyester uniform which were introduced by the Pirates, the short pants the White Sox tried in 1976. So there's all sorts of great stuff there, but one of the real highlights of the exhibit are the huge video replay boards, which feature most of the great baseball moments over the last 50 plus years. Uh, everything from uh, the Pine Tar game with George Brett to Reggie's three home runs in uh, the World Series against the Dodgers. Derek Jeter's flip play against the Oakland A's, just about any great play or moment that you can think of over those five decades has been captured on video or TV. And even though it's not an HD and sometimes, you know, the recordings are a little bit uh, hazy, fuzzy after all these years, it's still great to be able to relive those moments on these replay boards. You could literally spend hours just hitting the buttons and playing all these great moments. And, and these, these boards are all stationed throughout the exhibit, one after another. So I, I really, I like those two exhibits, Whole New Ball Game and uh, Shoebox Treasures. Um, they're very much um, at the top of my list. I, I really love them both. Um, one exhibit that we, um, we used to have, we don't have now is about the history of baseball uniforms um what what the curators decided to do a few years ago was they disassembled that exhibit so that they could distribute those uniforms kind of throughout the museum because they fit into lots of other exhibits um i guess at some point i secretly hope that we'll maybe bring back an exhibit like that but that's, you know, that's something for our curators, uh, to decide. Uh, they do a great job and they have really assembled a wonderful array of exhibits about the, about the game's history. I mean, there's, there's literally something for everybody. There's 19th century baseball, there's baseball through the 20th century. There's, uh, up on the third floor, there's the, uh, I call it the records room, but it's, um, it's an exhibit that, um, tells the stories behind the records and the milestones. There's a World Series exhibit. Um, We've got uh, art that's featured. We have an art gallery down on the first floor. Uh, We have the Buck O'Neill statue. Whenever you walk by that, it's kind of a sense chills up your spine, Um, especially for those who had the pleasure of meeting Buck, uh, even if only briefly there's just a lot of terrific stuff there. And if you're a baseball fan, if you're an American history fan, there's something you're going to find that you like in the museum. And ding,
0: ding, ding for both. Cause I, my background's also in American history, besides being an avid sports fan since yay hi, But with all that being said, what is the best way folks can contact you? If they want to learn about the department or get information such as the library and different things that go on at the museum besides the plaque room?
1: Sure. Uh, if people want to contact me, the, the best way is um, probably through email. And it's uh, bmarkeson at baseballhall.org. And I'll spell that out. It's B-M-A-R-K-U-S-E-N at baseballhall.org dot org so the b is my first uh, initial of my first name then my full last name at, at baseballhole.org send me an email um send your questions there i'll be happy to try to uh, answer them might not get back to you this week just because we're busy with uh, the classic but uh, I'll do my best. And I do try to get back to people, uh, if not right away, uh, hopefully within a reasonable amount of time. It's always fun to hear from fans. And if you have questions about what I do, what the education department does, I'm happy to try to answer them.
0: And I should mention on that note as well that Bruce helps run an interesting Facebook group. So what is the name of that group again?
1: Well, I have my own Facebook page, um, which mostly is baseball stuff. Uh, But then I have one for my horror material, and that's the Ghostly Gallery. So just punch in Ghostly Gallery on Facebook. Uh, There's all sorts of stuff about um, films, literature related to horror. Uh, Also information on the ghost tours that I do in Cooperstown as well. So um, two different Facebook pages to try to cover two of my major interests. People always ask me that combination is really weird. Baseball and horror. I can't (laughs) explain it. Sometimes they actually come together. Not too often. It's funny how it happened that way. Uh, I know that the baseball interest came from my father. I'm not sure where the horror interest came from, but it's
0: there too. Exactly. Well, Bruce, thank you so much and have an enjoyable week of the classic and such. And looking forward to seeing you this weekend.
1: Yeah. Thank you, John. Nothing, I appreciate it. Look forward to meeting in person. The Wiz kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klaususki Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. Are you annoyingly even killed? E-methamine could be right for you. I have a disease, all right? I need help. E-methamine lets you get gagged up on whoop chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following Oh my god! Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. You're naughty! This medicine is made for extreme cases of being even killed, or having extreme depression. Ah, come on! Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, trouble swallowing, decrease in semen. Increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my! Hello, everybody. I'm Billy Sample, former major leaguer and now filmmaker. And you're listening to Crazy Train Radio.